Welcome to the Playbook for Financial Entrepreneurs. My name is Rich Spence, and I'm the president of Mortgage Center Canada. In my day job, I have an opportunity to sit down with the creators, leaders, and top performers in the Canadian financial industry. And we thought it'd be great to start to record those conversations to help every entrepreneur in the finance industry to get better. See, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, my grandmother, my mother, myself, my wife, and now my daughter playing the game of entrepreneurship every day. Actually, my grade six career project was the art of entrepreneurship. I love the game. I enjoy to study the craft and I enjoy playing in it every single day. This podcast is a journey for you and I to go through together to study and explore the art of entrepreneurship in the arena of finance. I'm glad you joined me. Now let's get started. Thank you for listening to the playbook for financial entrepreneurs. My name is Richard Spence and this podcast, I had the opportunity to sit down with one of our fastest growing, most dynamic young group of ownership in Morgan Center. And I sat down with one of the owners, Heather Mana. Heather and her partner, Jackie, own MMG Mortgages in Alberta and actually have won, um, can't even count how many awards they have won in the last five years or so. They've been growing uh, and growing a great brokerage in Alberta. And I had a chance to talk to Heather about a lot of things. We talked about the demand for investment real estate in Calgary and the migration of investors into the Calgary market. We also spent some time talking about the evolution of the broker space as its view of by consumers. It used to be kind of like that dark, scary place that you went to get a mortgage now as a mainstream choice. Heather also talks about her experiences from going from banker to broker. And lastly, some of her advice about lead generation and why texting might be better than the good old fashioned cold call. So uh, Heather shared a lot of insight. Always love talking with Heather. So I hope you enjoy it. One of my favorites. How are you? I'm good. It's another busy week, but it's all good. Yeah, you guys back in action. Your uh, purchases are flying. Alberta's coming to life. You know what? It's actually has picked up over the last week and a half. It's it's gotten a lot busier. We had a bit of a lull where I think it was almost like maybe sticker shock with people and interest rates. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like it's back in action. I think a lot of people are trying to take advantage of the rate holds they had placed in place before they expire. But I mean, also people still need houses, right? So yeah. yeah. It's been busy. I'll take it. Do you think you're pulling demand forward, like because of those rate holds, like where people would have taken their time now, they're going to, they're going to pop on something (laughs) because their interest rates are going to be a lot higher. Yeah. It's just like anytime there's even any type of change, right? Like anytime the government makes like a policy intervention announcement or anything like that, you know, everybody kind of, it's the last few buyers that are trying to quickly get in before that happens. So same thing here, but I'm not as concerned about Alberta as maybe some people are in other areas, like other provinces, but yeah. And we still have a lot of Ontario buyers. Like I still had another two calls this morning from that. So we'll take it. Well, it's interesting. I'm, I listened to another podcast. I'm not going to try to say the person's name because I'll hack it, but it's about real estate investing in Canada. And there was a podcast on Calgary and, and it was the idea of, of investors across the country are, are flocking into the Calgary market. Yeah. And you're seeing a lot of it. Tons. 
Yeah. Are you a fan of Ben Rabideau? He's been predicting for many months that um, Alberta and Calgary is on sale. So he's, yeah. uh, he runs Edge Analytics actually out in Ontario. I'll send you his info. He's a good guy to follow. He gives a pretty unbiased opinion and approach to all this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, actually, I was just looking it up as you were talking. The, the podcast I just really got into is uh, Sarah Larby. I don't know if you've ever heard of yeah. her. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of her. Yeah. I've actually listened to some of her, some of her stuff. Yeah. yeah it's, re- it's really good. It, I'm an old man now. So I go for my walks after dinner and I just put my headphone on and walk slowly and I listen to her and it's really good. Really good stuff. So tell me that I mean, for those listening, they might not know your past. I mean, you, right now you are a mortgage center franchisee, one of the fastest growing mortgage center franchises. And we'll get into why and what that looks like. But how did you get started in the uh, mortgage industry? Before we get to how much of a rock star you are now, how did you get started? Oh, no pressure. Hey, so started when in the banking industry, when I was, I guess, 17 at the bank, at a call center, my first kind of quote unquote, real job at a call center. Anyway, call center, call center, real job. Yes. So started there, but then was interested in the the credit phone calls coming into the call center. So I moved into the credit team in the call center, lasted a couple months and then went to the branch as a loans officer worked there for a bit and then told the branch manager that I wanted to go into mortgages and be a hundred percent commission. And uh, he laughed at me and said, I was too green and would never, never succeed in a hundred percent commission role. And he, he said, you have my blessing, but I'll see you back in, in three months. Yeah. So that gave me a lot of motivation to just crush it. So yeah. went um, on the mortgage side at, at the bank and I did that for, I guess, about eight years, maybe, maybe not quite. And I mean, I was pretty young. I was in my early 20s, but I was the top producer in Alberta kind of year over year and decided from there to go into the brokerage industry just because I was saying saying no to a lot of people that should have been placed mortgages. It just mm-hmm. didn't fit within that bank's bucket. So went on the broker side and here we are. Fast forward now about another 10 years later. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, you touched on something there about um, saying as a bank specialist, you said a no to a lot of people. And so that was kind of the catalyst to move to the broker side. And I'm going to anticipate your answer, but should you have done that sooner, left the bank to come to broker space? hundred percent. But I mean, you also have to keep in mind that back then, like I'm dating myself here, but I mean, that was, I guess I, I officially went on the broker side about 14 years ago. And, you know, the broker confidence wasn't as robust, I would say, you know, 15 to 20 years ago, right? So the brokers were maybe still looked at in this space of challenged credit and, you know, very little market share. So, and I mean, and I was still, still young and, you know, wasn't as confident. And so, yeah, in hindsight, absolutely should have come on the broker side sooner, so much more opportunity. But I I think fast forward to today, if I was at the bank today, it would have been a much easier, quicker transition, just knowing how much more confidence and popularity that the brokerage space has. Yeah, definitely. The image of, you know, mortgage broker has ch- changed in the last 20 years, right? It, it used to have that stigma of, you know, car shark, you know, uh, loan shark, you know, you only went to a broker if it was really, really bad, right? That image has changed. Well, and, and the banks would have, you know, special guests come into our meetings and those guests were brokers, but the broker's you know, pitching us in the meetings was to only send the challenged files. 
Mm-hmm. So just as a banker, you were almost conditioned to think that the brokerage space was just for those, you know, bad deals or tricky, tricky files, right? So when you were at the bank back in the day, it wasn't necessarily do I leave the bank and go to the brokerage side? It was do I leave this bank and go to another bank, right? So that was that was more the competition. But again, I think it's a completely different space today. Yeah, that's interesting. I do remember that stuff where yeah, the brokers would have special deals. And then the banks. I I would have to say in the mid 2000s, they started opening up their own alternative division. So that didn't go to brokers and they they basically had an in-house broker under the bank's brand. Oh yeah, they're still doing that, right? And and I think the the popularity of the product, they're going to continue. It's going to, the alternative space is definitely getting more popular, but that's probably another podcast. Yeah, yeah. You know, thinking back to moving your first couple of years in broker space, what was like one of the largest challenges that you had to deal with? I'd say learning all the products. There was just, you know, you weren't focused on one bank. There was now a multitude of banks. The differences between, I mean, I came from a bank where there wasn't really a difference between, I mean, well, and especially back then, I mean, now there's the insurable, insured, conventional, right? There's all the different levels. And I mean, even now some of the banks don't have that. So it was really just learning all the different products. But the biggest thing, I think the biggest shocker for me is that at the bank, they don't encourage you to have a CRM. They don't encourage you to track. They don't encourage any of that because your book of business is the bank's book of business. So coming into the brokerage space, you know, it was a whole other world because you're not just you're not just a mortgage broker or a lender. You're also your own marketing specialist. You're your own tracking agent. You're your own owner manager. You have to do your own bookkeeping, right? So you, you wear so many different hats that I think that was a little bit overwhelming to learn, right? You're not just doing mortgages anymore. Okay. Well, so you got two distinct things out of that. So I want to break down the first one, learning products, because I know in your particular brokerage, you have assistance for agents where there's underwriting support or deal support that newbies might not necessarily need to really dive deep into products. So what's your stance now on that? Like, do you look at it like when a broker or a newbie gets into the industry, should they dive deep into products or should they line themselves out with a brokerage that lets them be salespeople and they have services that can help get those deals placed? I think the biggest challenge as a new broker is just make your phone ring. I think too many brokers spend too much time on creating, you know, the perfect social media campaigns or accounts and websites getting set up. And, and I think a lot of that is nerves, right? They they feel like they can't sell because they don't know the product. When really it's if you can make your phone ring, either the brokerage or maybe if you've got a mentor, they can help you on the back end. And it's, I mean, even now, I mean, if I take a call from a client, it's not, it's not uncommon for me to say to a client, you know what, that's a great question. I actually don't, don't know that. Because and and it's not because I haven't been in the industry for a while or because I don't see a lot of business. It's because even the banks change their policies or there's you know an unusual income scenario, right? So I think people get concerned with saying I don't know. But if people can get comfortable in that space and really you know just make their phone ring and then learn the product as they go, I think that's the better way to go. I mean that's just my opinion, but I will say that the more deals you see the quicker you'll learn, right? So you could have someone in the space for you know 20 years, but maybe they only do 15 deals a year while somebody coming in and having a mentor to work with or you know, kind of maybe doing something with the, the brokerage where they're taking overflow leads from a busy broker or the brokerage themselves, the more deals they can touch, 
the quicker that they're going to learn. Right. But yeah, I think it's all about making your phone right first. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, Tony, it's, you said something that's forking a memory. Tony Robbins, he talks about, and he has this business mastery session and he talks about a lot of people. There's the get ready, get set, go. But a lot of people get stuck in the get ready, get set, get ready, get set, get ready. And they continually work in that cycle of get ready, get set and never do the go. And I guess you're seeing a lot of that with young agents. Yeah. It's the confidence thing. Right. And I mean, even, even with, even with somebody who, like I said, has been in the industry for a while, but maybe just hasn't been able to really get in the groove with getting a lot of business. The the biggest thing that I tell everybody, it's, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. You could be talking to your mother, your father, your, you know, sibling, a cousin, a friend you haven't talked to in six months. Every single conversation we have in this space, like we should be talking about the industry or mortgages, like we should be excited about it. I think people forget that even our closest companions in life can be a referral source. And I mean, I don't think that we should be calling everybody asking for business. I I think that's actually kind of tacky. Um, But I think that if people see your passion about it and you're talking about it and you're leading with education, your phone will just organically ring, right? Like even if you pick up the phone and, you know, like I said, call a cousin you haven't talked to in six months and, you know, you're just saying, you know, have you know, do you have your ear to the ground with the market? Have you heard about interest rates? Have you heard about what's going on in the real estate world with COVID? You know, this is nuts. And if you start talking about it, you get other people excited and they hear your passion. And even if they're not in the space for a mortgage renewal or a purchase, that conversation will lead on to the next person and the next person mm-hmm. and your phone will just ring. So if you can continue to talk to everybody about the mortgage space, you don't even have to know about the product. Like for a new agent coming in, you don't have to specifically know that Scotia offers X or you know TD offered Y. If you just talk about even your own knowledge in the industry, about what's happening with rates and real estate, that should be enough to you know spark people's interest to call you. Okay. So if you, if you were mentoring every listener on this right now, and there were somebody's week, right? So Monday to Friday to get the phone ring, what would you tell the person listening to this right now? These are the three things you should do this week and every week to get that phone ring. What, what, what advice would you give to them? Yeah, we actually do this with a lot of our agents and in the brokerage. So I didn't know that. And I came up with that question. That's, that's kind of ironic. But go ahead. Very good. <laughs> no, everybody, honestly, everyone should build out a schedule. So um, a calendar. So the, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll dive in a little bit to this question. So on Monday, you should start with say block off two hours. And on Monday, you should do three or three to five phone calls to say builders on Tuesday, three to five phone calls to realtors on Wednesday, three to five phone calls to past clients. Or if you don't have past clients because you're new, then three to five calls should be to your own center of influence. So that could that could just be friends and family. The next day, you can do something like send a gift. And a gift could be something as small as, you know, you could ask a ask somebody to go for coffee. And if they blow you off, well, you know, you don't just say no. Then you can literally on your, you know, you can text somebody a $5 Starbucks gift card and say, no problem, like here's a coffee on me. Right. So, I mean, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of making them feel obligated. They're like, oh, damn. You know, now I feel bad for blowing that person off. They just sent me five bucks for a coffee, but that could spark them feeling obligated to meet with you. But every day, if you kind of build out um, a calendar or a structure that you do certain calls every day, and then say maybe a Friday you go to show homes, or maybe Friday is a bad example because show homes are closed. But as an example, you can go do different things and you start with maybe three to five a day. And then maybe the next week it's 
five to six, et cetera. But if you're only blocking out, say, two hours a day to build that stuff out or build, you know, social media posts, things like that, your phone will ring. I mean, it might take you three months, but your phone will ring and you have to develop a thick skin because people won't respond or people might not be interested, but you've got to do it. So if you can be consistent and have an accountability coach and make sure that you're doing those things, your phone will ring. One thing though that I'll say is that if you wake up on Monday morning and you don't have that calendar already built out, most people will procrastinate. So they'll say, okay, I know what I have to do today. It's Monday. I know I'm supposed to call three builders, but you know, I don't have any builders or you know, how where am I going to find these builders? Right. So what we say is take a couple of days, build out a calendar for say two months in advance. So that on that Monday morning, you already know who you're going to follow and Tuesday and Wednesday. So that's that's what I would do as a as a new agent. And then the biggest thing I would say is that you have to align those calls or your calendar with what you like to do. Because if you know you put something in that calendar, say, because another colleague did it or your mentor did it, where you know you should go into a show home or three show homes that day. But if you're more of an introverted person and you're not comfortable with the in-person meetings, you're not going to do it. Then you will procrastinate and you're going to skip out. So you have to build the calendar around things that you're actually comfortable with and that you like doing. So maybe someone's more on the social media side or more on the email side than the in-person. But yeah, everybody really has to, you know, even veterans in the industry, when you're looking to get new business, you have to align what you're doing with what you actually enjoy. Hmm. Okay, so let's break down even more. That was great. Thank you for that. That was honestly, I'm gonna take that as a video and I'm gonna show that on social media because that was like such great advice. But you said something in there. So you, you you started out with call, right? And then in my mind, it's call, like like physically call, like pick up the phone and dial. But then you said, but if you're an introvert and you prefer email or social media, do that. To me, that's not as effective. It's still the old school picking up the phone call, even if it's a voicemail and how awkward it feels, that is going to be more effective than in my, my, and I'm using the word, sorry, copying out and dropping an email is not really selling. What's your thoughts on that? We have to remember on the other side, you might be, you might be dealing with say a real estate agent or a builder or somebody else that is also in that same space, right? So, I mean, how many people have you even talked to that, um, or how many people do you know in your circle where they never call you, but they'll text you because they just, they don't like the phone, right? So you also have to know that there could be certain people that you're hitting up that, that, or I'll give you an example. There's some, there's some people that you will call and they'll never respond, but by phone, they'll email you back or they'll text you. And they're like, I just want to get this person on the phone. So you also have to keep in mind that there's going to be hit and miss, but it, and, and it's also, if I use the, the example of like the online lead gen, you have to, it's trial and error. You have to see what works and what doesn't. So you can't always just email the online leads. You'd have to email them and call them and maybe text them. And then you'll get one response, right? Or hopefully you'll get one response, but maybe it will be to the text and not to the phone and email. So it's really trial and error. And when we're building out these calendars, I mean, yeah, it's it's not just phone or it's not just email. It's you try one and if they don't respond, maybe try a couple days later and try a different avenue. When I say social media, you can find people on social media that maybe are new to the space. So most provinces have, obviously we have licensing bodies and if, you know, and those licensing bodies, if I'm using RECA in Alberta, you can actually see every week of 
who's new, who's newly licensed as a real estate agent. So as a new broker, you should watch that because a lot of those new agents don't necessarily have mortgage brokers that they're aligned with. So if you can watch that and you know pick out certain people that are new, maybe you find them on social media and you send them a message and you say, you know, hey, I love that post. I can really relate. Looks like we have a lot of synergies. I'd love to get together with you, right? You can try that. And if they don't respond on social media, then you know what? Maybe you try to hit them up and you just pick up the phone and call them. But you've got to, it's trial and error. You've got to try a few different, few different tactics. And you also have to think that the audience on the other end, they might be more privy to text than a phone call. Okay. Okay. So it's not necessarily your own swim lane or what you feel comfortable doing. Think about the consumers might, the person you're calling or texting or emailing might prefer one form of communication versus another. Yeah. Just like us. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So what on a script, so somebody wants to do the phone calling, what, and they're cold calling builders and realtors or, or center of influences, what's your advice to them? Right. Cause you know, that's hard. That's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, you know, it is hard. Like I'd kind of just alluded to earlier. I mean, I, I don't, I, I think it's tacky to pick up the phone and say, you know, Hey, it's Heather calling, you know, I'm a mortgage broker. Do you have any leads kicking around? Like, right. I, I, I don't think that's a great way to lead, but if, you know, like I said, if you're talking to your own people, so your center of influence, your family, friends, like I said, talk about the market. You don't have to specifically talk about, you know, do you have a mortgage coming up for renewal or are you in the market to buy? I mean, just talk about the market and that could spark interest where then that person goes and spreads the word to their coworker, et cetera. So I, I don't think it has to be, I don't think you have to ask the business. In some cases, I do. I do think you have to. But in, in other cases, I, I think you can keep it pretty casual. And if people see that you're passionate about the industry and what you're talking about, mm-hmm. then there'll be takeaways from those people. Now, if you're going into maybe a show home, right? Say a you know, parade or a new community of show homes. And if you're trying to hit up those builders, it, it is tough because how many other mortgage brokers or specialists have been in that show home that same day or that same week? So a lot of people, I think, make the misconception that they go in once, they make a good connection. And then those people will call them, right? So it's not like that. You have to go in and you introduce yourself, maybe say a few things that you could do that's different, You know, ask them permission to maybe send them some rate sheets as rates change. And then you have to take that away and you have to have a drip campaign or you've got to have a CRM where then every two weeks you can email them rate updates. You can email them little tidbits of you know need to know info or prime rates changing, things like that. And you have to keep in touch. But if you just go do a, a drop-in, um, and expect your phone's going to ring. It's it's not going to happen, right? You have to have the follow up. Mm-hmm. So, and and again, I, I I think that a lot of meetings, if you can you know land a, a coffee coffee date with a realtor, I think eighty percent of that meeting should be just connecting on a personal level. Maybe twenty percent can be talking about market, right? But if you can develop a personal relationship with someone, I think you're far more likely to get their business than you know like slamming them right with with sales pitches. And and I, and that that goes the same for a cold call for say like an online lead as far as scripting, right? I think that if you can ask them a lot of questions, people like to talk about themselves, right? So if you can ask them what their needs are, what they want, what they're they're seeing out there, if you can focus the conversation more on them and not what you can offer them, I think that's that's usually the key. Yeah, that's how to win friends and influence people, Dale Carnegie. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's that whole book is is basically that let let people talk about themselves right thank you for that that was extremely valuable we could probably end the podcast there because there's probably a million dollars worth of value there but but i do want to touch on a couple of things you said crm so when you started uh you talked about coming into this industry learning products and we explored that a bit and then you talked about the whole crm wearing multiple hats not just not just sitting there and filling in an application for the one for the mobile salesforce one lender you went into the CRM and you reference CRM again when talking about drip program to your lead. So walk us through what, what do you use and you know someone listening, what what would be like the highest impact things they could do in their CRM to make that phone ring? So yeah, loaded question. I mean, there's obviously a difference between the CRM and and the drip campaign, right? There's some systems that can do both and some systems that do one or the other well. I think it's important to have both though. As a new agent starting out, I, I really wouldn't spend any money in it. You know, you can use an Excel spreadsheet to track and then you can just email information with BCCing or referral partners, right? But you do need something. And coming from the bank land, you didn't have that. And that was a big mistake of mine is that I didn't have anyone telling me or mentoring me that I should have had a CRM or a tracking system. So for a CRM, we actually use a few different systems. We use HubSpot in our in our brokerage, the HubSpot also is our drip campaign. Then we do use Exact Contact. Exact is like an old kind of realtor system. Mm-hmm. It's clunky, but honestly, it's 35 bucks a month. It has been for the 10 years that I can remember. They haven't increased their prices. They can do texting. They can do emails. And then we have different, different groups. So in our CRM with Exact, we do mailouts every two weeks religiously. And we've got a group that goes to you know, a mail out that goes just to our builder referral partners, a group that goes out to our client database, a group that goes out to just our realtors, because there's different things that you might want to send to different so You people. change the content per group and you have those three groups. Yeah. Yeah. Probably more. Yeah. yeah. And then with the newsletter, I mean, newsletter goes out quarterly, but, you know, information and rate sheets for our referral partners goes out every two weeks. And we always include like what we call a mortgage minute, where we kind of give a quick tip about what's going on with the market. You know, and, and a lot of people say, well, we don't do newsletters. Why would we waste, you know, maybe two, three days in creating content for a newsletter when maybe the open ratio was only 20%. But, you know, I would argue that because if you have a thousand people in your database and 20% open that, that's 200 people every quarter that are reading that. Even if it's 10%, that's a hundred people that are reading that, that you didn't get before. And if it took, you know, two days to curate some information uh, and you get a lead out of it, I mean, that's, that's worth the time in my opinion, but it's also planting the seed for people to remember, oh, right, they're still around. They're still there. So then when they do have a mortgage need in the future, hopefully you're their call. So I think it's important to do the newsletters, quarterly newsletters. I mean, I think it's important to do obviously the renewals. That's a big thing. We have a pretty robust like renewal system. So, you know, we- How far before renewal do you touch a customer? Four months. So most of the banks, most of the banks are a few months at best. Uh, so we hit them up before. So we we send an email. We've got a two-pager that kind of says statistics as to why they might have better options moving lenders. We quote some current rates. So we send it out electronically. We then also phone um, the client as well if we don't hear back. If we don't hear anything at all, then we'll touch base again 30 days going forward. So it's also a good way to clean up a CRM, right? So you know, if somebody does call back and they say, oh, you know what? Thanks for reaching out about the renewal, but I actually sold that house a few years ago. Perfect. 
Um, if they didn't come back to us, it is what it is, but we can at least update the CRM, right? We yeah. can also ask them, you know, would you mind giving us your new mortgage info, just super basic data so that we can then put them back into our CRM for their next renewal, right? And I think the big thing that people forget about when they touch base on the renewal is that if somebody doesn't renew with you and they just renew with the bank, they don't update their CRM. It just drops off the system, right? But you also have to update it whether they renewed with you or not. Interesting. That's a good, that's a good bit of it. I would never even think that that's, that's great advice. I'm glad. <laughs> okay. So newsletters and renewals basics of the CRM. Those are those. And, and yes, and a hundred percent like rate updates, right? So like I was saying, you go into a, you know, a show home or if you meet a realtor and the realtor, you know, you have a lunch with them and they say, I promise I'm going to send you business. And then, you know, maybe you never hear from them. They're getting your emails, right? So every two weeks, every single person you meet with every single business card you get, those people should absolutely be put into your CRM. And they can opt out if they don't want to get the emails from you, no problem, unsubscribe. But at the end of the day, in my opinion, everybody that you meet should be getting added to your CRM. So two week, every two weeks, you find that frequency, is, do people drop off? Is it, um, no? People, no. Like, and, and to be honest, we get lots of emails back to, back to us saying, you know, would this be available for a rental, this, this, like this particular rate, or, you know, it gets forwarded to a client and then the client calls. But no, two weeks is the standard. We just kind of always done that. We haven't had any negative feedback one way or the other. This is Jill Page, EVP of National Sales at Merrick's Financial. We're delighted to be able to sponsor this educational session with NCC. Merrick strongly believes in the value of knowledge and the advice that mortgage brokers are able to offer to homeowners. As your success is our success, we are thrilled to be part of this. To learn more about Merrick and how to partner with us, please contact your Director of Business Development or Personal Account Manager. Thank you. That's amazing. I'm going to go one more because I know you touched on it. And I know G and yourself are very good at it. And that is the online lead conversion space. Because, you know, you and I have spoken before and some of the conversion ratio that you've seen is a lot higher than what I've seen in other brokerages and what they're doing. So maybe talk a little bit about your adventures in the online space, because I think some brokers... You know, there's this social media, online adventure, lead generation, dabbled in it. Conversion ratio was very bad and have just kind of shut themselves off to it and said, that's not for me. I'm just going to work my database. But I know you've played in that space. So maybe talk a little bit, maybe some of the background on on how you got involved in it and how it worked for you and just talk about it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that I think it's important to have a little bit of everything as far as what's coming in. So, I mean, maybe you invest a little bit of money every month and doing some online leads, whether, whether those online leads are, maybe you're using Google, maybe you're aligning with, you know, a, a company that's selling you the leads, but I think it's important to get some online lead business. Maybe you could even use social media, Facebook ads or otherwise, and test it. Everything, everything you do, in my opinion, you should test it first, right? So I think it's important to do some online leads, maybe. It's important to, you know, do realtor referral business, builder referral business, a little bit of it all. But as far as the online lead business, yes, a lot of people are apprehensive because there's a cost. And if you don't convert it, you don't get the lead, right? I think the big thing is, again, not, not slamming the client with like a hard sales pitch. I don't think 
anybody really wants that. I think a lot of people really just, they, they want the education. So, you know, you have to be prepared to spend some time with each client when you phone them and you get them on the phone, answer their questions, ask them a lot of questions about what really meets their needs. And I think that that's really helped with the conversion on our end. And so we have been pretty lucky. We've We've always kind of aligned with certain lead companies where we bought some leads. It's definitely not the bulk of our business, but we've been pretty successful with it. But the biggest thing is that those leads go into a CRM and they go into a drip campaign. And I think the biggest problem that a lot of people have when they do these online leads is they get excited. They might get a pitch from somebody or maybe a realtor calls them and says, hey, we're doing a real estate uh, lead gen system. And there's a mortgage kickoff on the back end that we want you to be part of. And a lot of people get really excited and they say, yes, I'm going to do it, especially if a realtor asks them, because if they say no, they're going to go find another mortgage broker. Right. But the problem is they get into it too soon without having the back end system set up. Right. So you, you, what about those people that maybe don't respond right away? Maybe they're busy or maybe they're interested, but not now. Maybe they're interested for six months down the road. Where do you put those people? So you need to have the backend systems built up to be successful with it. So um, I would say that was, that's my biggest advice with the online lead business. But also when you're committing to the online leads, it's not a short game. I think people assume that within a three-month period or six-month period, they're going to get some leads come in and they're going to track their succession ratio based on six months. It, it can't be a six-month game. You almost have to look at it as a year and you have to have follow-ups in place systems in place. Like I said, yeah, it's just like I was talking about before, you need to email, call and text in some cases, but you also need to know when to let it go, right? So if you're that person where you've, you're going to follow up 10 times and you write that client off completely because they're going to run so fast the other way. Okay. So do you, so do your lead? Okay. So I, what I took from that is online leads are, are an education game, not, not a hard pitch. So if, some, if you're generating leads from online, don't go into hard pitches right away. That customer is coming for education. Second, in my opinion, yeah, and, and don't sell. So, sorry, yeah, in my opinion, yeah. And honestly, half of our conversations don't even start with rate, right? They, and like rate doesn't even come into it until maybe 10 minutes into the call. Okay. The second thing I took from that is don't even get into the online space unless you have some sort of CRM slash drip campaign to handle these leads over a period of time. Don't even, don't even bother. Agreed. Yes. And, and the third is those leads do not look at it as a short game. It's going to take, it could, the closing, the, the sales cycle could be up to a year, hence the need for a CRM. Absolutely. But aside from a CRM as well, you also need to track. So you need to track your, your lead to app ratio, your lead to fund ratio, your app to fund. And you have to measure those metrics and say, you know, if if your if your lead to app ratio is really high, but if your app to fund ratio is lacking, then you have to look at your own process and see what you've missed because clearly there's an issue with your own process or your system, or maybe you've overpromised up front and underdelivered on the back end. So then you need to know those those metrics to figure out how you can better convert, right? Yeah. Okay. So giving like a longer timeline, like from being at a year, what would you say your conversion ratio is on online leads? N not taking that like, because a lot of people would say, Hey, you know, I got 10 leads this month and I closed one deals, but your first one of your advice is you have to look over a year period because those other nine leads will probably be further down the line. So 
What's your conversion ratio over, say, a 12-month period? It's really tough because, I mean, we we track different types of online leads. I mean, an online lead that comes organically to our website has a higher tendency to close because they've seeked us out than an online lead that maybe comes from, say, a rate site that we've paid for. So so it's a little tough to measure, but I would say that if you can get anywhere over 18%, you're in really good shape, in my opinion. Yeah, I I mean... That's what we aim for. Yeah, I would I would have put it on a five percent that you're good. And the fact that you put it at eighteen shows me like that's what I mean. You are very good at your conversion ratio of online leads. To, to be clear, though, what we're what we also track with those online leads because what we find a lot is that we might have paid for one lead, gotten an online lead, and maybe that one didn't go anywhere, but then they referred us a family member. Well, we still bulk that in to the online lead, but that lead wouldn't have come otherwise, right? So yeah, I, I think like we we would aim for about an 18% succession ratio on that. But again, I'm lumping that into also just leads that come organically to our, to our brokerage website. That's a great number. That is a great number. Okay. My standard question. If you could go back in time 10 years and whisper into Heather's ear, what what form of advice would you give her? Can I answer this with a multi-response? Yeah. I, okay. What three, three bits of advice would you give Heather? So I would have started to build an exit strategy mm-hmm. earlier on for say, maybe whether it's like building a sale business or what, whatever it is, I would, would have done that earlier on. I would have tested my assumptions earlier on instead of diving in and just getting excited about something and just going in 100%, I would have tested it first. I think I would have done a better job with auditing my outcomes. So if you tried something and it didn't go as planned, I think we all need to kind of evaluate what went well and what didn't go well and see then for the next idea, big idea, what you could do different. But that's kind of aligned with testing assumptions. So I would have started that a little bit earlier. And I think the biggest thing is in this is even, you know, touching into what we were talking about too, as far as, as far as tracking or, you know, the online leads, but really starting something before being ready. So I think we, we all just get excited when there's a business opportunity, right? And, you know, we all just get excited and say yes, because you don't want to lose the, lose the opportunity. But if you start something too soon and you don't have the systems in place or the tracking in place or the structure or process, it's just going to backfire. So, you know, slow down, make a plan. You're not going to lose the opportunity per se. And I think sometimes telling people, like, I'd rather turn you down than let you down. Right. And, you know, you need to give me a little bit of time to sort out a plan to make sure that the execution comes through properly. I think people will respect that more than just someone diving in, not having a plan in place, and then not having as positive an outcome. So I would say those would be my three and not to add a fourth, but just to I had say, you at four already. I had no because one, no, 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 because two of those were tied into one. So I'm going to call it three, but I'm still going to give you one more. <laughs> I would say that just understanding burnout. This is something that we talk a lot about, um, just like within our own team and our brokerage, because I think the thing that people forget is that we can all, when we're busy, we can all work around the clock. We can go at it a hundred percent, but when you burn out, you and this is everybody, like we can literally shut down for weeks. And what happens at that point? We, you know, we might piss off clients, referral partners, right? And then, and then you've lost that business, right? So just understanding burnout and and the balance, that's a big thing. And knowing when to shut off. Wow, this oh my God. Those are really good. I'm gonna ask you some some detailed questions about each some of them. But that one you said I've I've heard the phrase of uh 
to go faster in life, you actually have to slow down. Um, and yeah. I think that's re- really good, especially for entrepreneurs, right? Because we see how everything can work, right? Like we're just like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Okay, let's go, right? But slowing down to make sure you have a proper plan to execute, I, I think that's uh, such good advice. The um, exit strategy sooner, going down a layer, what, what would you have implemented sooner to make that exit either more lucrative or seamless or better? What would you have implemented? And the reason I wanted to ask a little bit, like part of Morgan Center, but we are the longest standing mortgage network in Canada. And part of my job is helping our owners that have been around for a long time exit or succession planning. And there's some that didn't do anything and there's some that did, right? So, and the, the paycheck at the end is exponentially higher for those that planned their exit very soon. It's very, very early on, right? So, so when you say plan your exit strategy sooner, what are one or two things that you would have done sooner? For the record, I'm nowhere near looking at getting out of this. Industry. No, no, I know, I know. But, I, yeah, but no, my, my predecessor, when I'm long retired, will help you with your succession plan. But what would you put in place sooner? Honestly, tracking. And and here's the thing: I hate tracking. I'm I'm the world's worst tracker. But it it, it is it has to be done. And this is something that I have to force myself to do. But I mean, let me give you an example. So, so, you know, my business partner, Jackie and I, I mean, we, we run the brokerage, but we're also, you know, pretty active mortgage agents. And if we were to leave tomorrow and say, want to sell the brokerage to somebody, the first question that they're going to ask is, okay, if you two step back, you know, does that affect the business coming in and the income? Well, at any given point, we should be able to pull up statistics and say, well, this is how many leads came organically to the website. This is how many leads came from our CRM and our book of business and our renewals. So we step away tomorrow. This is the actual income and business that you would be getting, right? So you need to have those numbers and you can't get those numbers unless you track. Same with, I mean, insurance sales. And I mean, you know, we don't have to talk about trailers, but of course, trailer like insurance trailers. Yeah. I mean, that's, so I mean, like that's a, a lot of people look at that, but I mean, for, for me, it's honestly more about, more about tracking and knowing the numbers and, you know, do you brand your business as an individual or do you brand your business as a brokerage? Because if you step away, then what does that do to people maybe who are looking for you? Right. So somebody that did a mortgage with you five years ago, are they going to Google you or are they going to Google your business? Yeah. So, you know, this is an argument that could go either way. And a lot of people brand themselves. And I think there's there's great reason for that. But to grow maybe a business that's saleable, there could be an argument that having an actual name and building a brand could be an easier sell than an individual name. So those would be, I guess, two points that, I, that I'd put out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I know you, you lightly talked about it, but the resi- any residual-based income, trailer model, be it from insurance or loans, that is guaranteed income for the new buyer, right? And I love that you started with database, right? Um, and tracking, right? Because if you in your business have a formula like you do for maximizing your database to come back to you, that is sellable. And I, I think a lot of people miss that, right? Yeah. We and you know, you if you're if you own a brokerage that has 
you know, agents under you, but you're also doing the business, you have to be easily, you have to easily be able to pick out and say, this is the income that the agents did versus the income that I brought in, right? So how do you do that? You have to track it. How do you sell a business that you can't tell people your numbers, right? So, you know, it's it, it becomes tracking becomes a habit. It's something that you can do daily or monthly or weekly. But, you know, and if you don't want to do it, hire someone to do it, but you have to do it. And it's not just for the saleability feature. It again comes down to, you know, what I was chatting about before too, as far as like auditing my outcomes or testing assumptions, how do you do that unless you track the data, right? So any idea that comes up, or even when we're talking about building out these calendars, if I'm working with one of our agents that have built out a calendar and we talk to them three months later and we say, what worked, what didn't work? Well, if they're not tracking those numbers, how can I help them? Yeah. Okay. It's going to be my last question then is based on one of your advice. And you said it was the biggest one is understanding burnout. What do you do when you feel it coming on to counterbalance it? I just drink tequila. No, I'm kidding. So, um, well, I'm kind of kidding, but no, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst and I'm still working on this. So I have a business coach that talks to me frequently about having thinking time. And this is very hard for me, but, you know, she talks to me about, you know, every day, if you're building out a calendar, um, if you're not building out a calendar, but you have your routines, you need to build out thinking time every day. So it could be 10 minutes, it could be 20 minutes, but you know, as the business grows or your own personal business grows, you need that actual time to sit and think about the business so that you're not always in the business. Mm-hmm. So the thinking time, you know, helps me with burnout, trying to shut off at night. That, that was a big one for me where I used to work every single evening. So, you know, I'd come home, I'd deal with my kids and then I'd work again. So for me, not working as much at night, but actually, you know, setting my alarm and waking up at 5 a.m., that actually combats burnout for me because I've got more time at night to shut off after a busy day and I'm more productive in the morning. And scheduling in, scheduling in just holidays and just actual time off and buddying up with somebody and having someone that you trust to manage your phone when you're gone, right? And I mean, these are all things that we all know that we should do, but when it's busy, it's hard to shut off. And you've got to do it. Cause like I said, I mean, I've worked myself into so many holes where you just get so busy and then you honestly are on crash mode and you, you're almost in this state of, you know, I, I can't even answer my phone for three weeks because you're so busy. Yeah. And, and we see, you know, all of our, you know, my entire team goes through that. Right. So that's something that I'm still working on, but little things every day, like the thinking time and not working at night, but working in the morning when I'm more productive, that all helps. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thanks, Heather. I really appreciate this. There's a lot of good advice in here. So anybody's listening, they should listen to this twice because it was uh, very good. So thanks for doing this. No, thanks for having me. 